How's everybody doing today? Um, it's been an eventful morning, to say the least. Okay, so um, a lot of stuff to talk about today. But without even trying, we have yet again stumbled ourselves into a Breakfast with Kyle segment. Um, again, this was not planned, but it tends to happen virtually every show now. I don't have enough time to eat breakfast before the show, so at the last minute I slap something together and I come on air and I eat for the first, like, five minutes of the show. Um, I'm breaking tradition today. The unofficial rule was that I have to have something cinnamon-y. I had this, like, cinnamon cake thing one time. I had cinnamon raisin toast another time. I had this, like, French toast um, toast. No, that sounds weird, but it's actually exactly what I had. I had that as well. Um, this time, I have a bagel. But this bagel is uh, sacrilegious, and I'll explain why. So first of all, everybody understands New York. One of the things we're known for are our bagels. It's our bagels and our pizza. That's the, like... People love them, and they go, oh, my God, New York pizza or New York bagels. And they really are. I mean, at least the places I've had bagels or pizza from that aren't New York, it's true that New York pizza and bagels are, like, on their own level. Um, but having said that, this is a standard Thomas's bagel. And real New Yorkers are looking down on me right now for being in New York at a place where I can get, like, an amazing bagel made in a small business bagel store that's been, been there since, like, 1965 that has, like, insanely delicious bagels. I had that option, but instead I'm eating a, a Thomas's bagel. It's like when you're about to eat pizza in New York and you might be in the mood for, like, Domino's or something. New Yorkers look at you like, the fuck? You got, like, eight super delicious uh, pizza places by you that are all, like, legit pizza places that make that really good New York pizza. But every now and then, you know, you want a Thomas's bagel or you want some Domino's. You want some, like, not legit shit. And that's the point, is that this Thomas's bagel super not legit at all. Um, but, oh, and the other reason why this is sacrilegious is um, I was really running low on time, like really running low on time, and I had to get on air. I would normally toast the bagel instead, since I was running low on time. I put it in the microwave. <laughs> oh, that's like, oh, that's a crime, putting a bagel in the microwave. I wish it was toasted, but, you know, it was a time issue. Anyway, mm. I got to eat as much of this as possible, as fast as possible, because we got a big show coming up. I have uh, Corin's favorite cream cheese, too. He loves this. Like the old school, regular Philadelphia cream cheese. He loves that shit. Mm-mm, bitch. 
By the way, shout out to Leon. We got another Kyle and Corin dropping. Excuse me, not Kyle and Corin. Kyle out of context. Mmm. And while I'm doing my long-ass intro, let me just tell everybody real quick. There's not going to be a show on Thursday. So that's the next show. And there's not going to be a show on Monday. So basically, we'll be back, not this Thursday, but the Thursday after. However, there will be a secular talking smack coming up um, sometime in that gap. I don't know exactly when, but sometime between now and the next show, which is not this Thursday, but next Thursday, there will be a Kyle um, or secular talking smack coming out. So there's that to look forward to. But there will not be, for the next two live shows, there will not be a live show. Mm. I should really jump into the stories. This bagel eating is taking longer than I expected. Oh, shit. I wanted some seltzer, but it looks like it's going to explode. Look at that can. This can was dropped a thousand ways, I bet. That's what it looks like. Okay, I gotta save that bagel. I'll have it in a little bit. I'll have it on the first break. Finish it on the first break. I finished like half of it. And now I got bagel all up in my teeth, bitch. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Let's get started. No rundown. We're gonna jump right into it. So there was a big rally and a big announcement over the weekend in Iowa from Jank Uger of the Young Turks. This is actually really interesting. So he unveiled what's called the Progressive Economic Pledge. And the whole idea behind it is we're not going to, this isn't every left-wing issue, and this certainly isn't, you know, like a, a, a pristine, immaculate, crystal clear, detailed litmus test or anything like that. But this is almost, almost a way to look at this is, this is like the bare minimum. So if you are running for president as a Democrat, if you can't even agree to these five basic planks, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. You're wildly out of step with the Democratic base, with the actual people, and move along. And you're not going to get our support. So I actually love this idea. I think it's a great idea. Um, and again, it's called the Progressive Economic Pledge. So if people, you know, look at it and they go, well, what, what about uh, social issues? I mean, it's fine to care about that. It's wonderful to care about that, and you should care about that, and you should push your politicians on those issues as well. But that's just not – it's a category error if you think it should be included in this. This is just for economics. Um, because naturally, you know, a guy like me, especially, I care about foreign policy just as much as I care about domestic policy and economic policy. So, you know, I could look at this and say, well, why is there nothing about ending the wars? But the reality is it's just, again, a category error. The whole idea behind this is the progressive economic pledge, and it's just basic things that it's like, 
this is like level one stuff. If if a Democrat running for president can't agree to these basic things, they're just insanely out of touch, and uh, they shouldn't be wasting their time in the Democratic primary in 2020. So here are the planks of this progressive economic pledge, and then when I get to the end of it, I'm going to tell you what I need you to do, because the people are really, really, really important um, in, in pushing these policies. Like, you guys are the whole point of this. So again, I'll get to that in a second, but um, first of all, higher wages. The pledge says, I pledge to fight for a $15 minimum wage and collective bargaining and to work on behalf of the American worker instead of corporate donors. That's the first plank. Second plank, Medicare for all. I pledge to fight for a single-payer Medicare for all healthcare system that transforms healthcare in this country into a right, not a privilege. Uh, the third one, Green New Deal. I pledge to fight for a 10-year plan to mobilize every aspect of American society to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions and create millions of new high-wage jobs building the infrastructure and uh, industries of the new economy. College for all. I pledge to fight for free college for all so that everyone can get to live the American dream, not just the wealthy elite. End the corruption. I pledge to fight for a constitutional amendment to ban the private financing of elections and to use all available paths to that amendment so we can once and for all have free and fair elections. So that's it. Very basic, very simple, very straightforward, very to the point. Higher wages, so $15 minimum wage, right to collective bargaining, um, Politicians need to work for the people and not their corporate donors. Higher wages, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, college for all, and the corruption. That's it. That's it. Again, bare, bare, bare minimum type stuff. It's the progressive economic pledge. And listen, if you're hesitant on any of uh, the specifics here, the devil's in the details. So for Green New Deal, you know, I've been critical in the sense that I think they botched the rollout of it, and I think they included too many things uh, in the package. It was way too ambitious. It was like a grab bag of left-wing goals. And it's like, well, no, if you're going to do a Green New Deal, make it a Green New Deal. You don't have to include 700 things in it that have nothing to do with a Green New Deal. Uh, just make it a Green New Deal. And um, that's what it says here. So, you know, whatever you want to call it, I don't care what you want to call it, one of the planks is, I pledge to fight for a 10-year plan to mobilize every aspect of American society to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions and create millions of new high-wage jobs building the infrastructure and industries of the new economy. That is the original idea of the Green New Deal, and it is 100% correct. It's not just a Green New Deal. It also will manifest as, fundamentally, a new New Deal in that you create millions of, of decent jobs building our new infrastructure and you make it you know, with green and renewable technology. So um, I am totally on board with that, even though I've been critical of some of the aspects of the rollout of the, uh, of the Green New Deal in how they put too many things in one. And I think it wasn't uh, very intelligent how they, they laid it out when they rolled it out and they opened up the door for, you know, insane smear attacks from the right and from Fox News. Well, this is, you know, they're going to still try to smear this, but good luck, because we're just talking about the basics of the Green New Deal, the original concept of the Green New Deal, just so you know, it polls at over 
When you lay it out like that, it's over 80%. So, and we, I mean, we don't need to go through each uh, specific plank here, but I file them all under the duh category. Yeah, Medicare for all, single payer. Every other developed country has one version or another of a single payer system. Healthcare is a right, healthcare is not a privilege. Uh, in the US, we have medical bankruptcies. Other developed countries do not have medical bankruptcies. Uh, we have tens of millions of people who are uninsured in this country. In other developed countries, there's no such thing as being uninsured. And also, by the way, it saves money. We'll save $5 trillion over uh, a 10-year period. So again, duh, file that under duh. Uh, making the minimum wage a living wage, duh. Free college. Listen, most other developed countries have free college. It's not extreme to treat college in the same way we treat public high schools. You know, if you had a choice as to what your tax money goes towards, what would you pick? Endless wars and corporate welfare and Wall Street bailouts, or would you pick college? Because that really is the great equalizer, where if you have free college, you give people a chance to climb up that, uh, you know, climb up the next rung of the economic ladder and hopefully make your generation better off than the previous generation. Um, and, and the corruption, again, is like the issue that supersedes all other issues for the simple reason that that's the main reason we don't get anything done is because the politicians are not listening to the people. The politicians are listening to the billionaires, the multinational corporations, and the lobbyists. So again, this is all duh. Duh, duh, duh. You're running for president as a Democrat in 2020. At the very least, at the very least, the economic issues you have to support Higher wages, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, college for all, and the corruption. That's it. Um, so I signed this pledge. Uh, I was one of the first people to sign it. Uh, I'm very uh, proud of that. I'm very happy about that. And uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has already signed it. Ro Khanna has already signed it. Uh, Bernie Sanders has already signed it. Okay, this thing was just rolled out the other day. And Bernie Sanders has already signed it. I believe Marianne Williamson has already signed it. She's another uh, one of the candidates running for the Democratic nomination, albeit a lesser-known candidate. Um, and we want everybody to get on board with this. So for those of you who don't know, back in, like, the 1990s, there's this guy, this uh, right-wing activist, this anti-tax activist named Grover Norquist, and he came up with this pledge I don't remember the specifics of it, but I think the general idea was I will not raise any taxes. So it's kind of like in the mind of a Republican, it's like, at first, do no harm. And in their mind, that's, at first, I will never raise any tax. So he came up with this pledge. Hey, very simple. If you want to run for office as a Republican, here are the rules. The one rule I have for you is you cannot, you have to pledge to not raise any new taxes. And, you know, obviously that's something we don't agree with. I would definitely raise taxes on the top 1%. Uh, and corporations, but I'm saying this was a, a strategy from right-wing activists to get Republican politicians on the record. So if they turn their backs on what they wanted them to do, they go, bro, I got you laid out right here. I, I see what you promised you were going to do this, and you didn't do it. And then that's something that can obviously be turned around on them in the future if they don't follow through. And you say, listen, you say you're on my side you literally turned your back on the things we wanted you to do. So you're not on my side. You pretend to be on my side, and then you stab us in the back. 
It's a way to get these politicians on the record so we have clarity, so we know who's on our team and who's not on our team. So the Republicans did that. I think it's time for the left to do it. I think it's time for Democrats to do it. Now, again, this doesn't include, like, all the super important social issues. This doesn't include, like, criminal justice reform and uh, legalizing marijuana and decriminalizing other drugs and freeing all, vi all nonviolent drug offenders. This doesn't include uh, immigration or abortion. This doesn't include foreign policy, which is incredibly important. But again, it's just a progressive economic pledge. So on specifically the economic issues, here we go. Here are the bare minimums. If you can't get on board with this, don't even pretend like you're on my team because you're not on my team. You're not on my team. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Are you going to sign the pledge or are you not going to sign the pledge? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And like I said, we already got the people who we know are uh, going to actually fight for this stuff. Ro Khanna, AOC, Bernie Sanders, they've already signed on. So here's what I need you to do. We're going to make this big, guys. That, that's the goal. We're going to make this big. I want you to sign. I'll leave the link in the video description box. It's the very first link in the video description box, okay? So click on that link, sign it, and then do what you can to pressure all of the Democratic candidates, all of them, even ones that we think like, ah, they're not going to sign. You're probably right that they're not going to sign. However, still, Go after them. <laughs> Tweet them. Call their office. Get involved. This is something very simple that we could do that actually is really, really, really important. So if, if I had to guess, you know, I think let's go with eight or ten. There will be like eight or ten Democratic candidates running in 2020 who will sign this pledge. Now, of those eight or ten, only half of them will actually believe in the thing that they're signing and will follow through. But that's okay because, again, let's say Cory Booker signs it. Well, we know he's not really on board with this stuff. It doesn't matter. Okay, so now we have you on the record. If Cory Booker were to become president and he were to not follow through, okay, we're done with you. Don't come asking for our vote. You know, don't uh, come and pretend like, oh, what do you want me to do? My hands were tied. I couldn't get anything done. And blah, 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 blah. We gave you five things, bro. You couldn't even get one of them done? You couldn't even get one of them done. No, stop. You're not on our side. You can pretend like you're on our side. We know you're not on our side. So get them all on the record. There are going to be guys like, you know, the breakfast cereal, Hickenlooper, and Joe Biden who will laugh in your face and be like, I'm not signing that shit. That's fine. Say, fine, great. Then I have you on record. I will not vote for you. Don't ask for my vote if you don't meet the bare minimums here. They are supposed to represent you. So don't feel bad. Don't be bashful about, like, telling them to support policies that you support. That's the whole idea of our system is <laughs> a representative democracy. They're supposed to represent you. So can you imagine how much power this will have if we get a million signatures? And by the way, all of these issues poll overwhelmingly high. They, they poll it's strong majorities for all of these. 80% want to raise the minimum wage. 70% want Medicare for all, including 52% of Republicans. I just told you the original Green New Deal pulled it over 80% support. Free college, I believe, is 58% support. Ending the corruption is over 90% in some polls. So this is all like actual bipartisan issues among the people, among the voters. So let's finally get these politicians on the record. And if they sign it, we go, okay. You're on our side. You're on our side. Because at least nominally you agree with us.
Now, again, it's a different story if they agree with us and then they get none of it done, in which case we're done with you. You turned your back on us, so fine. We're going to turn our back on you. You started it. We didn't start it. We would support you if you supported our policies. But if you don't, then don't ask for anything. Don't ask for donations. Don't ask for us to volunteer. Don't ask for us to show up and vote for you. Don't ask for us to mobilize and get boots on the ground and be organized for you. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But if you do support these things, then we're having a conversation. So I just want everybody to um, sign this pledge and then tweet it at your favorite presidential candidates or tweet it at the presidential candidates. Tweet it at them. Call their office and talk to them about it. Show up at their events and ask them if they support it, okay? And just for the record here, I don't care if you, if you dislike Cenk Uger or you dislike me. If you're somebody who's on the left, put all that aside because this isn't about me or Cenk or anybody else. This is about the actual issues. Higher wages, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, college for all, and the corruption. That's what it's about. So if you agree with those things, then sign the pledge, get involved, call uh, your presidential candidates, tell them to sign on, um, tweet at them, go to events and ask them about it. Uh, by the way, even do it with your representatives too. Do it with your representatives for sure. Because again, we want everybody to sign it. I signed it. I was one of the first people to sign it. I'm very proud of that. And all of you should sign it. And we really need to make this a thing. And by the way, uh, this was, unveiled at what's called the Revo Revolution Rally. Jen Huger held this rally in Iowa. This is a big deal. And almost no mainstream media outlets covered it. Again, Grover Norquist, who was never as popular as uh, Jenk, when he was doing the, you know, the Republican anti-tax pledge, and when he started that, wall-to-wall -wall coverage. Wall-to-wall -wall coverage. There's something about corporate media where they find any kind of right-wing activism, whether it's big business activism, activism on immigration, or any other issue, they find it like inherently sexy and inherently appealing. I'm not saying the media necessarily agrees with those right-wing views, but they present it, and it's, it's like a big deal to them. Like, ooh, look, activism on the right. Wow, grassroots. When it's left-wing activism, <laughs> They bend over backwards not to cover it. They look for an excuse not to cover it. I mean, we're finally seeing the beginning of a very strong, populist, anti-corruption, anti-establishment movement on the left around actual policy issues. And the mainstream media just ignores it. They really do. They act like, yawn, people asking for health care. Boo, who cares? Anyway, let's give Richard Spencer another glowing profile. It's so shitty, it's so disingenuous, and it's so gross. And um, we have to get the word out on our own then, just like we did with Justice Democrats. Remember when we launched Justice Democrats and we did our long segment on this show and then it took off? And, like, we need to do the same thing now with this. And this pledge idea is really, really, really an amazing idea. So it's called the Progressive Economic Pledge. Very simple stuff. Get everybody you can to sign it. By the way, don't just you sign it yourself. Share it with your friends who agree. Post it on whatever message board you, you, you talk at um, and all that stuff because we need to make this a giant issue. And 
Nobody's coming to save us. We need to save ourselves. And the way we do that is to mobilize around specific issues and force the hand of these politicians. So that's what we're going to do. And we're just getting started. Okay. All right, let me take another bite of my bagel because I want to. Mm-mm. Mm-mm, bitch. The bagel was just sitting there staring at me, and I couldn't help myself. All right, the Iowa poll. Let's talk about that. All right, here we go, baby. So I wanted to catch everybody up real quick on what's happening in the presidential primary, the Democratic primary. We have a new Iowa poll that's out here from the Des Moines Register. Take a look. Joe Biden is at 24%. Now, he dropped pretty significantly since the last time um, they did this poll. So he's doing what we all kind of expected would happen. Bernie Sanders is at 16%. Now, to be fair, Bernie also dropped a little bit. So uh, that is not a good sign, and I do not like that at all. Then we have Elizabeth Warren at 15%. By the way, she charged. This is a a huge charge because she was not doing this well even, you know, one month ago. But definitely you go back three months and she's down there in Irrelevanceville. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, 14%. I think that that's largely smoke and mirrors and it will come down as um, the election rolls on. Kamala Harris at 7%. Then we got a cloud in my boot jar at 2%, a stork to be bet on at 2%. Then you have Michael Bennett, Cory Booker, Julian Castro, John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard, Jay Inslee, and Andrew Yang at 1%. By the way, I really do believe that um, Tulsi Gabbard and or, and or Andrew Yang, um, when it comes to the actual voting that will occur and when it comes to the caucus actually happening, one of them will massively overperform in the polls, if not both of them. So I think these polls are a little bit on the low side. Now, you could say, well, Kyle, you're just biased because you're saying online there's a massive following for, for those two candidates, to which I respond to you, yes, that is what I'm basing uh, this argument off of. However, the difference is I actually think that that matters. I actually think that level of online support while it may not be the number one indicator, the key indicator, um, it is a indicator, and I think that uh, mainstream pundits are a little silly in how dismissive they are of candidates who develop a strong following online. Now, 
does that mean that it'll be enough to win the primary? No, that's not the argument I'm making. But the argument I am making is um, I think either Andrew Yang or Tulsi or both will greatly overperform like the 1% numbers, 2% here and there. Um, and we'll see. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I have no problem uh, being wrong and coming out here and saying I was incorrect. But that is my sense of, of, of that. Now, I want to give you the ultra losers, as I call them. This is hilarious. We have um, Sandra Bullock, Governor Sandra Bullock. Uh, she is both an actress and a governor. Zero uh, percent. Kirsten Jellobrand, zero percent. The breakfast cereal John Hickenlooper, zero percent. Seth Moulton, zero percent. Tim Ryan, zero percent. Eric Swalwell, zero percent. Marianne Williamson, zero percent. Bill de Blasio, zero percent. Wayne Messam, zero percent. And then we have none of these and not share, 6%, 6%. Here's why I love that. Here's what's hilarious. There have been more positive stories about Kirsten Gillibrand, um, Breakfast Cereal, Hickenlooper, Seth Moulton, Eric Swalwell. There have been more positive stories about those candidates than there have been about Andrew Yang or Tulsi Gabbard. In fact, the media pretty clearly bends over backwards to smear them and to act like they're extremists. They even accuse Andrew Yang of being like, you know, a stealth white nationalist or something because he picked up some um, bigoted followers online. Um, but every, in every interview, they bring that up with him. And they're like, why do you have white nationalist supporters? And he's like, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm like a fucking Asian dude who likes math. I don't fucking know. And I disavow all of their support. He says that every time. And it doesn't matter. They'll keep bringing it up and bringing it up and bringing it up. So there's nothing but smear coverage of Tulsi and Andrew Yang. And they still have more support than some candidates who have had positive coverage. Now, to be fair to these candidates, it's not like they get coverage all the time. Kirsten Jellobrand doesn't get coverage all the time. Um, the Breakfast Cereal doesn't get coverage all the time. Moulton doesn't get coverage all the time. Swalwell doesn't get coverage all the time. But they certainly get more positive coverage than Tulsi or Andrew Yang, and uh, they're still down there at a very sad and pathetic 0%. Um, but I will say, this race is still wide open, dude. This race is still wide open. And also, watch out for Warren. Now, here's the thing. I think her pol political instincts are genuinely good. However, she's overcoached. And so... What you've seen many times is she'll say the right thing, and then her advisors will say, no, 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 don't say that, and then she'll come out and, and change it. The example that comes to mind is when we learned about how the Democratic primary in 2016 was effectively rigged, and she was asked that question on a show. She was asked, like, hey, is, you know, so is it fair to say that this thing was rigged now? And she said in an interview, yes, it was rigged. <laughs> Then, like, three days later, her staffers or whatever made her come back out and say, Did I say rigged, bro? Rigged. That's, not, that's too strong a word, man. I didn't really mean all that. So um, this is what happens with her time and time and time again. Her instincts are fine, but she's overcoached, and then she does some stupid fucking uh, tactical move that makes her look stupid and, and calculated and shrewd, and, and it, it's very transparent, and people don't like it. And so what I think has happened recently is she's just been rolling out policy proposal after policy proposal after policy proposal after policy proposal. And she is kind of focusing on what her expertise is. So most of the stuff that she's been releasing is on Wall Street policy or tax policy. It's usually in regards to economics in one sense or another. And 
it actually has gotten headlines. It has, you know, created stories. And I think people see that and they go, yeah, okay, cool. I like that. Now, the, the worst of Warren is um, what I just described when she's overcoached and overcalculated, um, but also what she did when she stooped down to Trump's level. And to fight him, you need to fight him on policy because he's in over his head when you talk policy. If you stoop down to the level of let's just do childish insults and throw mud at each other, then he's going to win that 10 out of 10 times. So initially she went down to his level. It seems like she may have learned the lesson of like, I can't do that, um, but I can stick to what my wheelhouse is, and her wheelhouse is just release policy after policy after policy, and that's what she's doing, and she's going up in the polls. Also, I don't know what her ground game looks like, but I assume it's a pretty solid ground game. So do I think that the Elizabeth Warren numbers are real? I do. I do. Now, again, to be fair, I don't know. Um, my guess is this poll probably oversampled older voters as well, which is why you see uh, Joe Biden still leading. I think that's probably true. Um, but I also think it's fair to say he still is the front runner. He's got a lead, no matter what you think the lead might be. It might be as small as 4%, let's say. But he does have a lead. Um, but either way, Elizabeth Warren is making a charge. Joe Biden is definitely slipping and going in the wrong direction. And Bernie's kind of plateaued, and he's just waffling around the same area. And uh, what we need to do is, you know, get more involved, get more involved. And I, the thing is, recently I've seen a lot of positive things coming out of the campaign. So for the numbers to drop a little bit from Bernie, as they have, it's a little concerning. Because he has the strategy they've been doing has been a pretty solid strategy recently. And I like what I've seen from calling out Bill Kristol um, on foreign policy and telling him to apologize to the American people, to the awesome speeches that he gave with hashtag no middle ground, and um, putting front and center foreign policy in his move on speech. I thought that was wonderful. He's been protesting directly with McDonald's workers and Walmart workers. So the strategy is there. But for whatever reason, it's still just she's moving along like that, and uh, we gotta we gotta reinvigorate here. We need a shot of adrenaline. We gotta light a fire under everybody's ass and get them more involved and go support Bernie. So let's get him over that line. But here you go. This is the state of the race right now, and it's definitely fascinating. Okay. Next, bitch. All right, let's make fun of MSNBC because they're a joke and they're terrible. And I hate them. So MSNBC bent over backwards in an attempt to try to make Joe Biden's flip-flopping appear to be a positive thing. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is abandoning a long-held position on abortion. In remarks last night, Biden abruptly changed his stance on the Hyde Amendment, a four-decade-old ban on using federal funds for abortions, except in cases of rape, incest, or to save the life of a woman. 
That came just a day after an exclusive NBC News report from Heidi documenting Biden's record on abortion, in which the Biden campaign reaffirmed his support for the restriction. Facing a swift backlash from abortion rights activists and at least 12 of his rivals for the 2020 Democratic nomination, Biden opened with these comments to a DNC gathering last night in Atlanta. For many years as U.S. Senator, I have, uh, I have supported the Hyde Amendment like many, many others have. But we now see so many Republican governors denying health care to millions of the most poorest and most vulnerable Americans by refusing even Medicaid expansion. I can't justify leaving millions of women without access to the care they need and the ability to, con to exercise their constitutionally protected right. If I believe health care is a right as I do, I can no longer support an amendment that makes that right dependent on someone's zip code. So that is a change, Heidi, of course, from Joe Biden. Beginning in 1976, when the Hyde Amendment first came to pass, and again and again and again voting to uphold the Hyde Amendment until last night. And in fact, when your reporting came out two days ago, it contained, again from the campaign, an affirmation of his support for the Hyde Amendment. It was a really stunning turn of events, Willie, because in my research, I saw that Biden not only went along to get along on this vote, like a lot of other senators who said, hey, we can't pass our spending bills unless we agree to this because the Republicans will never vote for it. No. Biden's record was that he forcefully and very enthusiastically supported this amendment going back to its earliest days. I called them when I saw footage of an ACLU activists who seemed to get him to change his position. I thought, that's big news. I called them. They thought about it for a while. I gave them plenty of time to think about it. They got back to me and they said, no, he still supports it. And of course, you saw what happened with the reaction to that by all of the presidential candidates, by all of the women's rights groups, like Emily's List, like Planned Parenthood, who said, you know what, in this context, Joe Biden, you may have supported this your entire career, but we are in a moment here that we have not faced really since the inception of Roe with the unprecedented assault on abortion rights. And I think we don't know exactly what went through Biden's head, Willie. We do know from our own reporters, intrepid reporters, Mike Memoli and Mariana Sotomayor, on the ground that this really happened last minute. Even his aides, two to three hours before his speech, said that they didn't know what he was going to do. He seemed to not be reading this from the teleprompter and actually really speaking from the heart. It's interesting. I've said this at the beginning of Biden's campaign. People were very concerned. Wow, he's got a, lot, a long history when it comes to crime, when it comes to bank regulations that's going to sneak up on him. And I've said his defense is always going to be, look, I grow. I could change my mind. It's not changing my mind from age 40 to 42. And I think he's going to have the same Teflon feeling that Trump had. I think Democrats want him so bad because they believe he'd be Trump that they're going to let him go. You know what? I changed my mind. I changed my mind. So the very thing that I think a lot of the other candidates are hoping for, that there's a lot of stuff in the last 34 years is going to stick, I think this is the first inaction example of how he can gracefully pivot and voters are going to give him a pass. That says it all. He described that as a graceful pivot. He can gracefully pivot and the voters will be okay with it. Okay, but you just made that up. Let's be clear about that. That's not like, hey, I'm making this argument and it's based off of X, Y, and Z. It's been shown in the polling numbers and so on and so forth. No, you just made that up. You pulled that out of thin air. You said, oh, I think he's going to have the same Teflon uh, feeling as Donald Trump had. 
but he's already dropping in the polls. When Trump did anything, his poll numbers went up. The entire time Trump's poll numbers went up. From the second he launched until the first debate, until the first contest, and out th- through, throughout the entire process, Trump's numbers kept going up. Joe Biden announced, and then they're still, even with keeping him out of the public eye as much as possible, he's already dropped 10 points since he announced. That is, by definition, not Teflon Don. That's the opposite. I mean, they're so transparent. It's so obvious that Donnie Deutsch and these MSNBC hosts, they want Joe Biden to be the nominee, that he's just working backwards from his conclusion and rationalizing. And I love how he gives what his take is, and he pretends like it's the take of the, uh, of the Democratic voters. Just say it's your take, man. I mean, it would still be pathetic and sad that you're making that argument, but at least, you'd be, at least it would be genuine in that it is what you believe. Like, yeah, I'll give him a pass because I like him. But no, he portrays it as, oh, you know, the voters will give him a pass because they want him so bad because they think he can beat Trump, and so therefore they'll let him do stuff like this. Oh, come on, dude. Come on. And I saw Nate Silver got mad about this, and he attacked Ryan Grimm because Ryan Grimm mocked Joe Biden for uh, his flip-flop on this. And Nate Silver said something to the effect of, you know, you would think that the left would be happy that Joe Biden moved to their position. And everybody was dunking on Nate Silver because it's like, come on, how are you so dense when you're supposed to be the data guy, you're supposed to be intelligent, and you don't realize that The reason why people are upset about it is because it's totally disingenuous. Like, okay, he flipped to this position, but how do any of us know that right when he's in the general election that he won't flip back to being uh, for the Hyde Amendment? So for those of you who don't know, the Hyde Amendment is it's um, a federal law that you can have no federal tax dollars go to abortion. And the idea is, oh, this isn't health care. This is a, a political procedure, and federal tax dollars shouldn't go to that because some people don't agree to it. I mean, that's so strange. It's like an exemption for only um, that issue. Why don't I get to say, I want an exemption for Wall Street bailouts, or I want an exemption for endless war. I don't want my money killing innocent brown people overseas. Why don't I get to say that? And then they implement that into law. But they don't. There's special little snowflakes for the, abor- for the anti-abortion people. So Joe Biden, for, with a compromise with the right for the longest time, was fine with the Hyde Amendment. It was for the Hyde Amendment. He said, yeah, okay, fine. No federal tax dollars going towards abortion. So the polls in the country are, actually show that the Hyde Amendment is popular. A majority of voters support the Hyde Amendment, believe it or not. So, of course, I could definitely see Joe Biden flip back in the general election. See, that's the point, Nate, is that, yeah, he's flip-flopping, but we know it's disingenuous. We know it's for political reasons. We know that a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who opposed the Hyde Amendment his entire goddamn career, we know where he stands. We don't have to question where he stands. We don't have to worry about the general election, him trying to pander to the far right, and he goes, listen, I was supported all those years, and maybe I still support it. So, I mean, how, do you, how are they so dense that they don't realize this? That you don't see this isn't like an actual change of heart. He's just responding to political pressure. Now, you could argue that's better than the alternative. That's fair. 
but it's still not as good as somebody who's been on the right side of this the entire time. And what's fascinating is, I guarantee you, here's my prediction, I guarantee you, on all of the issues where Joe Biden really should say, okay, you know what, I tap out, fine, you guys are right, all the energy in the party is behind this, he's not going to do it. And he already showed that with Medicare for All. Medicare for All is one where you're not in favor of it and you're running to be the president as a Democrat in 2020. I mean, you are just utterly wasting your time. But that's one where Joe Biden's political instincts will be, no, I'm not going to be in favor of it, and I'll be okay not being in favor of it. No, you're going to get eaten alive if you're not in favor of it. But it's funny because on other issues where if Joe Biden st- stuck by his guns on this issue and he was like, yeah, no, I, uh, I, I agree that uh, abortion should be legal. I agree that um, it should be provided by insurance companies. I believe that uh, state tax dollars can go towards it, but we made a compromise a long time ago, and I stand by that compromise, and I think it makes sense to have no federal tax dollars going towards it. That would have been that would have been him at least being honest about what his stance is, and it may be a storm that he could have weathered. In other words, I don't know how much his support would have dropped. I mean, it's possible that um, it would have dropped more than it's dropping right now, but I tend to doubt it. But with this, like, it's weird because on all the issues that he's going to flip-flop, those are the issues where he maybe could have just stood his ground and said no. But the issues he's going to refuse to flip-flop to the proper position are the issues where he's going to get eaten alive. The point I'm trying to make in a convoluted way here is his political instincts are are shit. (laughs) Joe Biden's political instincts are total garbage. Um, And he's going to prove that over and over and over and over to the point where you heard them, they said, I talked to the people from their campaign just before he gave this speech, and they were saying he still supports the Hyde Amendment. And then Joe goes out there and flips and says, no, 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 I'm not in favor of the Hyde Amendment. It must be nice working for a candidate who you don't have to worry about this stuff. Like Bernie, you know, you know where he's been. So you don't have to worry about it. What if I say this? Is he going to come out and flip his position? Is he going to try to pander? Is he going to do this? Is he going to do that? Bernie is so principled, even when he'll walk into a minefield, even if like 90% of the public disagrees with him. <laughs> to be fair, I don't know the, I forgot the exact numbers, but like when he said, um, felons should be able to vote while they're in prison. Like th- that's a rare issue where Bernie is actually totally out of lock with the mainstream, uh, the mainstream vote, like average Americans. But he was just like, yeah, well, I'm just going to tell everybody what I, what I think and I'm going to argue for it. And there's something that's very refreshing about that, even when you disagree with them. And, you know, with Joe Biden, he's all over the place. I don't think he really believes in anything. And um, I think he will continue to self-destruct, as we're currently seeing right now. And all the while, all the while, the MSNBC host will be defending him. Can you imagine if Bernie Sanders did the exact same thing that Joe Biden did here? How would Donnie Deutsch and how would these MSNBC hosts react? They certainly wouldn't say, oh, well, the Democratic voters are going to give him a pass, even though I just totally and utterly made this up and pulled it out of my ass. I think the Democratic voters are going to give him a pass. No, you're only saying that because you want to give him a pass. That's it. Crystal clear. So, um, fuck MSNBC, fuck Joe Biden, and, uh, but it is fun watching them implode.
Okay, next. Here we go. Time to make fun of Joe Biden some more. So Joe Biden has been slipping in the polls recently. The more he talks, the worse he does. Um, This is a dynamic that I told you would happen, and now it's happening. So he's already trotting out the desperate tweets. And this one that I'm about to show you here is just wonderfully sad and pathetic. He tweeted, happy hashtag best friends day to my friend Barack Obama. And you can see he has like the lanyard bracelets there with their names on it. <laughs> yeah, here's, here's, uh, here's how Barack Obama responded to that. Is there anybody who doesn't understand what Joe Biden is doing there? You would have to be the most naive person on the planet to not get what Joe Biden is doing there. That's Joe Biden realizing, oh shit, I'm tanking in the polls. And that's him going, what do I do? What do I do? It's panic time. And so he wants to remind everybody, who, me? Me? No, I'm, see, I'm the guy who's, I'm, I'm like uh, Barack Obama. Remember, I was the VP. I was his VP. I was from the, the Barack Obama days. Barack Obama, his approval rating is like 60%. Mine is plummeting, and I'm doing worse and worse as the days go by. But I want to remind you that me and, Bar- me and Barack, that Barack, I'm like Barack, I'm like Barack's choice. I'm like Barack Obama's choice. Remember, I was his VP. I'm the VP guy. And so if you want to go back to the days when it wasn't, we didn't have Trump and, and we had somebody who was smarter. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm the guy who's the next. Uh, it's my turn. Uh, so I just want everybody to know it's me, me and him, me and him, me and him, him and me, him and me, Barack Obama and me. Just, just if, you li- if you like him, then you can pitch me. Just go with me. Just go with me. Guys, Obama didn't even endorse Biden. And then Biden had the nerve to say to the media, I'm not joking about this. I, I didn't even want it, bro. I didn't even want it. Like, I, you know, I, I told him, he didn't tell me anything. I told him, like, listen, Barack Obama. I love you and stuff, man. I don't want to put you in a weird position or anything. I don't want you to pick sides. So, like, yeah, you could stay out of this primary and whatnot. Is anybody naive enough to really believe that? Is any- so you're telling me if Barack Obama was about to come out and endorse Joe Biden, Joe Biden would say, bro, stop, all right? You've got to be fair and objective and neutral about this, man. Come on, what are you doing? I don't want your endorsement. I don't want it at all. I have no doubt he desperately wants the endorsement. And Barack Obama was like, you know, Joe, um, we had some good times, good times in the White House. Uh, but let me be clear. I'm going to stay out of this primary because there are many uh, wonderful candidates. And um, uh, I think uh, even though you're a great person and would make a great president, it's not my place to get involved. And I guarantee you Joe was sad by that, sad, saddened by that. So this is like his desperate... <laughs> His desperate attempt to remind everybody, no, no, remember when you said, like, you know, like a few months ago, like, oh, if Biden runs, it'll be great because he's the reminder of the Obama legacy. So, yeah, go. Biden would be wonderful if he jumped into the race. Go back to that. Go back to that. Don't focus on the fact that I fucking flip-flopped a thousand times on the Hyde Amendment. Don't focus on the fact that um, I'm imploding and I came out against Medicare for All at a time when over 80% of the Democratic Party wants Medicare for All. Don't shh, 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 don't stop. Uh, shh, 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 don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. Oh, so sad, man. See, this is what happens. 
when you want the power, you want the title, you want to be president, but you don't really believe in anything. It's like trial and error the whole time. I don't know if I press that button, will that help me? Oh, fuck, that hurt. Okay, no, now press this button. Does that help me? Like, you could see the wheels turning. Like, how can I try to say the right things to push the right buttons in order to get in that White House? Whereas with, you know, a guy like Bernie, he's just telling you exactly what he thinks should happen with the country, and he really believes in it, and so it's a hell of a lot more appealing. Um, now, Ken Klippenstein made a great point about this on Twitter. He said that this tweet from Biden reminds him of this tweet from Jeb Bush. Yeah, hard agree on that one. <laughs> so it's a gun. Jeb Bush tweeted a picture of a gun, and it said, America, with a period. You're so sad. You're so sad. Oh. First of all, my guess is Jeb is not like a gun guy in real life, okay? Feeble boy Jeb Bush is not packing heat. <laughs> Let's be clear. He's not packing heat. This is just one of those things like, please like me, Republican base. Here, it's a gun, and it says America. I like guns, and I like America. Don't you like guns, and don't you like America? Well, maybe I'm your candidate. That's what this is like. Joe Biden has uh, morphed for the time being into uh, Democratic Jeb Bush. But lucky for him, there's about eight different Democratic Jeb Bushes running right now, including Bet on My Stork, including uh, Pete Buttigieg, including John the Breakfast Cereal Hickenlooper, Amy Cloudboot Jar. I think at least one of them had their own please clap moment, so they're a lot like Jeb Bush, too. But yeah, this is a, a moment that's particularly Jebish. That's a new, our, our new word. This is a very Jebish moment from Hansy Uncle Joseph Biden. And um, I would say I don't want to see any more of this, but I actually want to see a hell of a lot more of it because it'll guarantee he continues to tank in the polls, and it's hilarious. So Brian Stelter had a debate about free speech and censorship on YouTube on his show, Reliable Sources. Let's watch a bit of that, and then we'll discuss. Where is the line, and who is deciding? Every week there's news about a tech company banning accounts. This week it's been YouTube announcing they're going to ban white supremacist content, Nazi content, uh, also videos denying proven atrocities like the Holocaust and the Sandy Hook shooting. Might sound like a great thing, but there's also been a backlash, uh, and there's also been some problems with the way it's being enforced. Some educational videos about these issues have also been removed and banned. Let's bring back our panel to discuss this. Let's see, Cup, uh, it seems like it's been uh, a year now with conversations about banning accounts. Yeah. Uh, we've seen a lot of changes in that year, and I think people find the slope to be very slippery. It's a tough, it's a tough line to navigate. Um, in, in this case, I think erring on the side of not censoring is generally the best position, especially when censoring um, includes educational information, facts, history. 
Um, I find it particularly jarring, though, that the people begging corporations to censor this are mostly journalists. That is really alarming to me. Are journalists begging or are they calling out extremist content yes. on the platform? They are doing both. They are saying, YouTube, you must do something about this, and that something is generally get rid of this content. And so I don't have to say I hate this content. But journalists, but, but, journalists but, exercise editorial judgment every time. day. Sure. That's not censorship. That's no. deciding what's good quality content and what's incitement. I mean, the, the larger question here, I think, is that it's beyond white supremacist content, right? It's misogynistic content, it is anti-vax, it is None of child illegal. It is, it is pedophilia. But whatever happens, that's, that's illegal. But whatever that's happens, it'll be terrible speech with more speech. That's right. But the recommendation engine of YouTube takes us into a new territory. Right? There's been excellent reporting and studies in the last week, a lot of it published in the New York Times, showing that beyond even this more speech, the recommendation engine of YouTube is driving people towards ever more extreme content. That's an editorial curation that they are doing. And so on that and they want to make money off that. They've been making money off that. Yeah. And that's part of it. So they need to, they have to have an editorial. Every journalism organization. Right. Every, it's not a journalism organization. Well, okay, but we're out of time. We will keep it going this time next week yeah. on More Reliable Sources. It's a shame that debate was cut off early. Um, so, can't believe I'm going to say this, but when Effie Cup is the voice of reason, we got issues. So, I can see it happening slowly but surely, and it is terrifying. This is all happening at once now. The New York Times just did a long article, and um, here, I'll show you the title of that one. It says, Caleb Kane was a college dropout looking for direction. He turned to YouTube, and then it goes on to say he was brainwashed, and then they tell you his personal story. Now, I've actually seen, there's a great video that Caleb released on his channel that explains how he got radicalized on YouTube and how he got out of it. Now, I have nothing but love for, for Caleb. Um, I love the video that I saw. I love the people who he watches now on YouTube, I think, are great people. Uh, great political commentators and, and, you know, cultural commentators or whatever the hell you want to call them. And uh, also, he follows me on Twitter, so he's got wonderful taste. Um, <laughs> now he does. Back in the past, he doesn't, but he would admit that he didn't back in the past either. Um, but having said that, uh, I think uh, you would be naive to not realize what's happening now is that YouTube and mainstream media are using fringe, fringe cases as a, a reason, giving them an excuse to crack down more, to crack down more on the, on the fringe content, on the borderline content, as they call it, and to try to scrub YouTube to make it squeaky clean, to make it more advertiser-friendly. Now, you know, some people might support that. Okay, but that's not the original idea of YouTube. The original idea of YouTube is that it's just a medium, and you put whatever you want to put up there. And there are rules, but very, very few rules. And the idea is, as long as you're not doing, like, direct threats of violence or doxing people or clear cases of libel or slander, then, you know, it's basically anything goes. I mean, that's the idea. It, 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 it's a very strange thing, in my opinion, when... You know, like Essie Cup said, journalists go to Twitter or go to Facebook or go to YouTube and say, Stop, they're bad people who said bad things on your site. And <laughs> that's like if you have a bathroom and 
somebody wrote some fucked up shit, let's say they wrote some homophobic or racist shit on a bathroom wall, and you call the wall company, and you're like, why is there bad stuff on your wall? And they're like, I, I don't know. I didn't post that shit. I just put, built the wall and put the wall up in the bathroom. That's got nothing to do with me. But it's your wall. Why are you allowing bad shit on your wall? I had nothing to do with it. I just built the wall and put it up. I'm not, I'm not responsible for everybody who walks in and posts some, writes some crazy shit on the fucking wall. What are you talking about? But that's actually where we're at now. So what YouTube is doing is they're using this to say, all right, well, you guys are begging for it, so we'll give it to you. We're going to ban the fringe channels, demonetize ones that are borderline, and like I explained to you guys on the last show, it's happening to not hateful people at all, people who are, Mr. Alsop History was one. He posts history videos. Some of the history videos included Nazi propaganda. I think he had his channel pulled. I don't think he was just demonetized. Ford Fisher, I think his channel was pulled. It wasn't just demonetized, but he was also demonetized. Um, and Ford Fisher is a guy who tracks extremism and covers stuff like that. Deep Fat Fried podcast with T.J. Kirk. Now, you don't have to like him, dislike him, whatever the fuck. It doesn't matter. He, they got totally demonetized. Some of their videos are like they did a fucking podcast about pirates and Blackbeard. You know, they've done a podcast about Tim Allen. The fuck? Well, that one I get censoring. No, I'm kidding. I'm just, that's a joke. Relax. I'm not, I don't support censorship. So, but that's like, and this is just a few examples. If you go to at team YouTube on Twitter, type that in and read the stuff. Everybody tweets them. It's nonstop one after another, after another, after another of channels being like, I got demonetized. What the fuck? Or you never monetized me in the first place. Or I'm not violating the terms of service at all. What are you doing? And you know what it is? I'll tell you what it is. Cause I went through it with the first apocalypse. It's, they cannot differentiate between genuinely hateful content and content that exposes the hateful content or calls out the hateful content or brings transparency to hateful content. They can't distinguish. So in other words, if I do a video where I'm calling out Richard Spencer, they don't distinguish between that and a Richard Spencer video. So a video that's literally pro-white nationalism is treated the same as a video that disagrees with and destroys white nationalism using arguments. And so it's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly sloppy. But my whole point to people, particularly on the left, who are in favor of the crackdown here is, what you don't understand is they will never walk the line properly. So in other words, it's not like they're ever going to say, okay, fine, we're going to ban the people, we're going to ban people and demonetize, but only the right people. That's not how it works. When you open the door to demonetization and censorship and banning, there is no little bit of censorship, a little bit of deplatforming, a little bit of demonetizing. It's always going to be like this, where, you know, to pull down one hateful person, Ford Fisher goes. It's always going to be like that because there's so much content on YouTube, and the only way they can go about, uh, you know, taking action is through algorithms, and the algorithms aren't smart enough to make the proper distinctions. And the thing that really should scare everybody is they literally admitted that we're going after borderline content now. So in other words, they're not, now it's not just, okay, only the things that really clearly cross the line are we going after. No, now they're saying, well, if it's borderline, we'll take action too. Now the action may be less severe in some cases. Sometimes it's not less severe. But in some cases it might be less severe where we just, you know, 
put an age restriction on the video or we take it so that it doesn't show up in recommendeds or whatever. But when you're treating borderline content like, you know, it can't be seen and it has to be hidden and you can't find it in the search engine, I mean, what you're doing is you're effectively giving these people who create the so-called borderline content no way of being a, a real YouTuber, a serious YouTuber, somebody who gets, you know, a channel that becomes popular. And borderline is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't, I shouldn't have to make that point, but unfortunately in today's climate, I absolutely do have to make that point. But so what is borderline? I guarantee you YouTube's version of borderline is way different from my version or your version of borderline. Because th they said it, hey, we're going to take down um, anti-vax content, misogynistic content. Now, I'm against misogyny, and I'm definitely against anti-vaxxers and for vaccines, but should you be allowed to discuss it? Yes. Yes. And what counts as sexist? What counts as sexist? If you call a female politician an asshole, is that sexist? Because some people would say, yes, she's a female politician, you're calling her an asshole. Okay, you might stand with that one. What if somebody called a female politician a bitch? I'm guessing that most people would say that's sexist, but what if it, the context is just not sexist? You just don't like some shit that a female politician did, and in the process of, you know, laying out a bunch of insults, that's one of the things you say. I mean, there are so many examples of, like, borderline. Probably more than half my videos would be considered borderline by YouTube. I mean, seriously, how much, how much stuff do I do on foreign policy? Where we talk about Iran, where we talk about U.S. war crimes, where we talk about Saudi Arabia, where we talk about Israel... I mean, there's so much content where some people might call it borderline. When I go after, you know, the top 1%, go after the Wall Street goons, some people would call that borderline. When I go after corporations, are you kidding me? Absolutely, they would call that borderline. So this is the door that we've opened now. And like I said, Look at what's already happening. I don't need to use a slippery slope argument because that's a criticism that's levied at me many times. Like, oh, you're using the slippery slope fallacy. It's not a fallacy if we're already halfway down that slippery-ass slope. Go talk to Ford Fisher about whether or not the slippery slope argument makes sense in this situation. Okay? Go talk to Mr. Alsop's history. Go talk to any of the people who were demonetized totally unjustly where there's not even a close to an argument that can be made that's, that's legitimate as to them being pulled down. Now, in the case of Caleb Kane, let's talk a little bit about that. So, yes, he got radicalized. He got pulled into this vortex. There are some commentators who serve as more or less a gateway to worse content. I think that's a real phenomenon. I don't know how many – I don't know how prevalent it is. So, in other words, I don't know if some people, they start watching one um, commentator and then – it's an inevitable slide all the way down to the fringes of the internet. And next thing you know, you're cheering on white nationalism with Stefan Molyneux or whatever. Um, Cause I think some people might just watch the so-called gateways and then just stay there and not go deeper. So I think maybe a little bit too much, too much is made of that dynamic, but it is certainly a dynamic that exists and it does happen with some people. But what is conveniently being ignored is in the case of Caleb Kane. You know what got him out of it? More YouTubers. So he went down this rabbit hole. He was all of a sudden, you know, an alt-right kind of guy. And then what got him out of it, one of the things that got him out of it was Destiny. Destiny's a, you know, a, a lefty Twitch streamer. And he was doing debates uh, with, I think, Lauren Southern on race and IQ. 
Um, and he's done that debate time and time and time again. And, you know, long story short, Destiny made these clowns look ridiculous. He exposed them for being really vapid and not really knowing much. And he poked a zillion holes in their argument. And Caleb Kane, that was, a, you know, kind of like a light bulb moment. And then the process began of him getting out of these hateful views. So it's a weird thing to talk about how evil and wrong and terrible YouTube is. You're willing to give YouTube the blame for the people who end up having shitty beliefs, but you're not willing to give YouTube the credit when people get out of those shitty beliefs or never had those shitty beliefs to begin with or developed a totally different political ideology because of YouTube. So in other words, they're not tracked. They're not saying there's no article that's saying, oh, as a result of this YouTuber watching David Pakman and Sam Cedar and the Young Turks and Jimmy Dore and Kyle Kalinske and, and, and Destiny and whoever, Humanist Report and Rational National and Benjamin Dixon, as a result of, you know, this person watching all those YouTubers, they went on to, you know, start a shelter for, for homeless kids and they got involved in politics and they got involved in their state government or their local government and they helped increase wages. You don't hear those stories because they don't view that as a story. They view it as, I guess it's a good thing, but I don't, I'm not going to look into that. <laughs> That's just happy-go-lucky. So this is the same kind of problem we see with the media in general um, and how they cover right-wing activism versus how they cover left-wing activism. They view right-wing activism as like inherently sexy. So Grover Norquist releases this anti-tax pledge that he makes all of the Republican politicians sign, and he gets a zillion profiles. Richard Spencer goes on a fucking white nationalism tour, and he gets a zillion profiles. I co-founded Justice Democrats, which helped got Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and others elected. I didn't get a fucking profile. I'm not complaining at a personal level. I'm just explaining how there's this, there's this weird dynamic in the media where, like, right-wing activism and is sexy to them. The Tea Party, ooh, endless coverage. Justice Democrats, did they get endless coverage? No. The night Alexander Ocasio-Cortez got elected, a lot of them were like, who? Who's Alexander Ocasio-Cortez? The Justice Democrats, what is that? I don't even understand what that means. Jake Uecker just launched another project called the, the um, Progressive Economic Pledge, where he says, hey, here are five planks, and if you're running for president, you have to sign on to it so we know you're on our side. And it's this big thing. It was big online. We just spoke about it before. And are there, is mainstream media covering that at all? No. So there's this weird bias, this selection bias towards, like, dark, creepy, extremist content. And you get the sense that, oh, my God, YouTube is nothing but this fucking cesspool that turns people into terrible human beings when they don't give you any context and they don't explain at all how, well, it's weird. The solution to that with many people was other YouTubers who are preaching the right thing, who are preaching lefty ideas. And even people I like, like Lee Fong of The Intercept, he was tweeting the other day like, well, what this article goes to show you in the New York Times is that there really isn't like a left-wing infrastructure on YouTube. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> what have I been doing for the past fucking five years of my life? More than that, actually. Seven years of my life doing left-wing commentary and content nonstop. And it's not just me, it's others too. But that's, like, it's not true. It's how it's portrayed. So if the answer to fucking insane right-wing YouTubers was a left-wing Twitch streamer and left-wing YouTubers, why isn't that a bigger part of the story? 
Why are we being propped up? Why sh shouldn't the mainstream media be singing our praises? Oh, shit. Destiny got this guy going. He fixed this guy's life after he was going down a bad path. Wow. Maybe we should give him a glowing profile. Maybe we should talk about him. Never, never, never would they do that. So that's what's frustrating to me is people want to take a shortcut to defeating these odious reactionaries. And their shortcut is like, and the article's tone is crystal clear. It, it's like implying and begging for more censorship from Silicon Valley. Oh, we got to do something. We got to do something. And in their minds, they think, well, if we just ban them, if we just ban them and we just yell at YouTube to do more censorship and more deplatforming and more demonetizing, well, then we'll win. No, then people fucking hate you even more because it is a shortcut. It is cheating. Yeah, I, just, I don't know. Just fucking... Get them out of the discourse completely. Those ideas don't go away. They just fester now on 4chan. And they go to other, you know, dark corners of the internet. So what we need is, by the way, yes, you can have basic rules. No direct threats of violence. No doxing. Like I've said a zillion times. No libel. No slander. Things like that. But it's got to be crystal clear. But outside of those very few rules, yes, it's supposed to be an open platform. And you're not giving the platform any credit for the overwhelming positive stuff, and all you're doing is blaming it for the negative stuff and demanding that they take action and they fucking do more, uh, do more censorship. And it's, it's shitty. It's a terrible idea. And now we're at the point where they've come out and said it. They've come out and said it. Oh, what we're going to do now is we're going to go after the borderline content. Well, I got news for you guys. That's me. That's all of your favorite fucking YouTubers. Because why? I'm not politically correct. I'm on the left and I'm not politically correct. I curse. I talk about very, very taboo subjects. Subjects that they wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole in mainstream media. So when they say we're coming after borderline content, it's me. That's what it is. It's me and it's many others like me. And if you're on the left and you're cheering for this, be careful what you wish for. Because you're part of this. You're already part of this. David Dole's been fully demonetized for a long time. So it, this is the wrong path. I don't know how else to say it. It's the wrong path. The idea that if you prod them to censor more and deplatform more, that tweak the algorithm more, that they're obviously only going to go after the hateful actors. They already haven't done that. So be careful what you wish for. Okay. I really think that the example of conspiracies is the best one to illustrate the point. Because they start with, like, okay, well, obviously you know, Sandy Hook being a hoax, people saying that, that's brought a lot of pain to people, so we're going to clamp down on that. And then it became Flat Earth, and they're saying we're going to delist or whatever those videos. And then again, the next question is, well, what about 9-11 truth? They're pro they probably have acted on that, and if they haven't acted yet, I bet they will. But then again, then it becomes JFK. I mean, more than half the country thinks that it wasn't as 
we were told. It's not the official story of Lee Harvey Oswald. There's a lot of content about that. I've seen content. I've seen a documentary about that on the fucking History Channel. But that might be a little too extreme and, and not cookie cutter enough for YouTube. So then they act on that. And then we get into modern politics. Oh, are you questioning whether or not it was jihadist rebels or Assad that did the gas attack? We're going to get rid of you. This is the path we're going down. Oh, are you saying that um, Saddam Hussein didn't do 9-11 and doesn't have weapons of mass destruction? We're going to get rid of you. See, again, this was the political climate at the time. You were the conspiracy theorist if you said Saddam Hussein does not have weapons of mass destruction. You were the conspiracy theorist at that time. Today, we know you were right, but if YouTube existed at the time with all the journalists begging for censorship, who do you think they're going to take down? The people advocating for war or the people advocating against war? They're going to take down the anti-war voices. This is the way that this stuff functions, man. And what happens in, in a case where we know it was mainstream media that was doing fake news? How many of the Russiagate stories were totally false? Like when they said Paul Manafort met with Julian Assange, totally untrue. So if CNN or MSNBC runs a segment on that and puts it on YouTube, can they get pulled down for that? Will they get pulled down for that for spreading fake news? See, here's what's going to happen. And they already said it. Oh, we're going to redirect to more authoritative content. But the reason why people are on YouTube is to escape the authoritative content because they don't fucking like it. They don't like the cookie-cutter bullshit. CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, ABC, NBC, CBS, they get stuff wrong all the time on top of just being boring. So look at this stuff, man. CNN just finished with Jake Tapper doing a, a smear campaign against Medicare for All where they were wrong about everything. Will YouTube take down the Jake Tapper video where he says that Medicare for All costs more money even though it saves $5 trillion? Are they going to take down that video? Of course not. They would push a video like that. Because this is not about what's actually true. This is not about what's objective. This is about we're going to push up the authoritative voices and get rid of the fringe, borderline, independent voices. And we're going to make YouTube more squeaky clean. And would you look at that in the process, we've propped up the existing corporate order. And there are no more threats to the existing corporate order. That's where this ends up. And if you don't see it, I would beg you to reconsider because it's not going to go down the way you think it's going to go down. It's not going to go down with, oh, they'll just go after all the hateful people and that'll be the end of it. <laughs> no, that's not even close to what's going to happen. And I know that because it's already not happening like that. Open your eyes. take a break here. When we come back, I got the 75th anniversary of D-Day and Brian Kilmeade breaking the stupid meter. Then legalized psychedelics. That's a conversation we're now happening. And um, Big Pharma is going to feel our wrath today. Stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and more.
Son of a bitch. All right, we're back, people. Okay. Let's make fun of Fox and Friends and Brian Kilmeade. This is something else. So this next video is so stupid that I literally clipped this short, tiny, tiny segment out of a longer compilation to show you because it's worth it. Okay, you're going to hear some goofy music in the background here. Bear with the music, but you'll hear the point from Brian Kilmeade. This happened on the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Brian Kilmeade broke the stupid meter with his comments on foreign policy. This was too good to pass up. Where do I begin? How can you say that when you know we are still there? <laughs> We've been in Iraq since 2003. So do the math on that. 2003, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. So we've been there 16 years, bro. The Iraq war is old enough to drive, right? I think you could drive at 16. Am I right about that? I think that's, I think that's what it is. We've been there all these years. We are still there. And you said we left. And ironically enough, um, the Soviets, are not there. The Soviets, the Russians, are not there. And in Afghanistan, they left. We are still in Iraq, and we are still in Afghanistan. He said we went there to liberate them and then leave <laughs> and rebuild them. Liberate them, rebuild them, and leave. I don't know if you guys know this, but and you probably do because we've covered it. The reconstruction in both Iraq and Afghanistan, it was basically nothing but the military-industrial complex looting the treasury. They, if I'm not mistaken, billions of dollars are missing. That's not a thing. Like, that doesn't happen. Like, whoops, misplaced a couple billion. My bad, dog. No, that's people fucking stealing. That's contractors stealing. That's what that is. This was nothing but a grab bag of corruption where the military-industrial complex loots the treasury while pretending like, who, us? No, we're just rebuilding Iraq and Afghanistan and making them look wonderful and pretty and beautiful. Seriously? But this is the arguments that they made, man. Brian Kilmeade said we liberated the people of Iraq, which reminds me of an old Bill Maher joke back when he wasn't terrible, when he said George W. Bush was going to liberate Iraq if it meant killing every last one of them. That's kind of what happened. At the very least, 200,000 innocent civilians were killed. Uh, some estimates go over a million. The idea that, like, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney were sitting around in Washington, D.C., and they were genuinely concerned about, like, democracy in Iraq. Oh, please. How naive do you have to be to believe that? At the same time, 
We are best buddies with Saudi Arabia. They are not a democracy, not even close. We prop them up. We arm them. We fund them. They also have tremendous amount of oil. I'm sure that's a coincidence that we're allies with them and they have a tremendous amount of oil. Um, and we look the other way as they behead people in the public square for sorcery and witchcraft and apostasy. Brian Kilmeade's understanding of politics is honestly less than that of a middle schooler. I think a middle schooler would be able to say things that are more accurate than Brian Kilmeade. Somehow in that clip, which was less than 20 seconds, he managed to embarrass himself like three times. <laughs> oh, God. This guy has a job, bro. This guy's job is talking about politics. And you wonder why the country's so fucked up. This dude is a political analyst. And he really believes the U.S. went to liberate Iraq, bring them democracy, and then we left, even though we're still there, and we didn't liberate them, and they ain't a democracy. Okay, now Justice Democrats are doing Justice Democrat stuff, and you gonna love it. So Justice Democrats are continuing to do awesome Justice democrats things. Take a look at this. AOC pushes to make it easier to study shrooms and other psychedelic drugs. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez filed legislation on Friday to remove a legal barrier that scientists say makes it unnecessarily difficult for them to study the medical benefits of psychedelic drugs like psilocybin and MDMA. Psilocybin, the active compound of so-called magic mushrooms and MDMA, commonly referred to as ecstasy, have shown promise in end-of-life therapy and treating uh, PTSD, a summary of Ocasio-Cortez's proposal says. So um, apparently since 1996, there's been um, this law that's been slipped into other legislation, which basically says, like, under no instances can anybody support, even for medical research, these kinds of drugs. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just wants to scrap that. Now, you know, this, this is one of those issues where no matter how much we don't want it to be the case, it's going to be a slow progression. So you and I both know in a world that made sense, these things would be immediately not just decriminalized, but probably legalized. And that's not where we're at. But what we're seeing here is they're getting the ball rolling. And so the first step is let's make it so we can study these things and get solid data and solid information on it. Um, and yes, the studies that I've seen, and I know because we've covered them on the show here, is that Almost all psychedelic compounds are um, unique and interesting drugs in the sense that some of them, like, break other addictions. Like, if somebody's addicted to cigarettes, let's say, or somebody has a heroin addiction, there are some psychedelic drugs that kind of snap that cycle of addiction and dependence, um, which is fascinating. And then others have shown incredible promise for stuff like PTSD and even for stuff like um, 
severe depression or end-of-life depression where you're, you have a terminal illness and you know you're going to die soon, so of course you're going to be sad. But some people have had these psychedelic experiences around that time in their life, and it just snaps them out of it. And they don't feel like everything's hopeless. And in many cases, people are even willing to accept death and be open-minded about it because they feel like, hey, maybe there is something beyond this because the psychedelic experiences are so unique and interesting and unlike anything you've ever experienced that it makes people think, what the fuck do I know? I don't know anything. So maybe there is something after this. Who knows? So it just it's, it has amazing positive benefits. And at least now they're beginning to say, let's study it and let's maybe move towards medicinal uses but yes, we're seeing with this, like we're, we saw with marijuana, it first started with, oh, we need to study it more, blah, 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 and then eventually got to, let's decriminalize, and now you have a variety of states that have legalized. And I think we're going to see the same kind of trajectory here with, uh, with psychedelic drugs, and I think that's a positive thing. So credit to AOC. And listen, what we, we needed justice Democrats, and we needed young, bold fresh-thinking lefties to go in there and rattle the system. Because I got news for you. Not in a million years would Nancy Pelosi take an initiative on something like this. Never. You think Chuck Schumer would be sitting around in the Senate, like, thinking of doing a pro-magic mushrooms bill? would never happen. And this is why politics is really important, and it's vital to everybody's life. It really shapes the world we live in. So that's why you need to get involved, and that's why you need to uh, vote, and that's why you need to fight for the candidates you prefer, because we can change the world. And this is just one of many ways in which we're doing that, and it's definitely a giant step in the right direction. Okay. So some Americans woke up last week to find their water bright purple. It was originally reported as happening in West Virginia, but now people are saying it's in Ohio. Look at this. So officials told residents that... um, this color you're seeing on the screen now, this water, it it was caused by a pump malfunction and an excess amount of sodium permanganate dumped in the water. Sodium permanganate is used to remove iron and manganese from uh, the water supply. What happens is it oxidizes it and they turn them into larger particles that can then be filtered out. So, The idea behind the chemical that was used to make it look like this originally is an idea that it actually helps purify the water, clean the water, make it drinkable. But since there was a mistake and since there was too much sodium permanganate, that's what turned it purple. Um, Now, an officer from the water treatment plant claimed that this isn't dangerous, so don't, don't flip out or anything. It's all good. 
this isn't really bad for you. But then they went on to caution the residents not to drink the water and not to bathe in the water until it was clear. So that's, you know, that's concerning when they hit you with, there's nothing wrong at all, man. By the way, don't you dare touch it or drink it or bathe in it. <laughs> well, that's, okay, then obviously something's wrong or else you would say it's totally fine, drink it. I mean, common sense tells you don't drink the fucking bright purple water. By the way, I know it's poisoned water, but that is a beautiful color, isn't it? It's, like, it's, it's lovely. It's a lovely color right there. Anyway, I digress. Um, but this is what's happening now, man. This is, we are one of the richest countries in the world, and they keep, for example, increasing the military budget for no reason, because we have a military that's bigger than the next 10 biggest countries combined. We are uh, trying to, you know, make sure China and Russia don't get a foothold into maybe challenging us as the next world superpower. So we just go nuts spending endless amounts of money on the military-industrial complex, doing Wall Street bailouts like crazy, having uh, $80 billion a year in quantitative easing for big banks. The list goes on and on on the stuff that we spend money on that we shouldn't spend money on. And every year, giant increase, even like Elizabeth Warren votes for the military increases. At the same time, our infrastructure gets a grade of D+. And you're seeing the result of that. This is the result of that. This is the result of that right here. You are seeing it. It is disgusting water that's poisoned in, in many places around the country, not just Flint, Michigan. There's many places that do not have clean water. Um, it's our roads and, and bridges that are crumbling. It's our really shitty airports. Our airports are really terrible for the most part. It's all that stuff. Listen, it, if I was running for president, one of the first things I would do is I would say, we're doing a national project to make our infrastructure number one in the world. I don't just like, see, that's the thing. I don't just want to improve our infrastructure. I want to make us have the number one infrastructure on the planet. Because there are places that, I mean, just, have like high-speed rail, Japan, beautiful high-speed rail, and other places as well, and, and it's just beautiful airports elsewhere in the world. Like, I don't just want to upgrade ours. I want to beat the other places. I want to have our infrastructure get a grade of A+, every aspect of it, from water lines to, to sewage treatment to fucking airports and bridges and roads and everything. And unfortunately, we're dragging our feet. And it's a really sad thing to watch because you want to have your, you want to have this view of your country as like, you know, being really great. But when you see stuff like this and you see the misplaced priorities and you see the people dying from lack of health care, it's infuriating. So, and, and boy, it, some balls on, on the people who said, oh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with this water. But by the way, don't drink it. Like, just... Tell the truth, man. We're not idiots. We see fucking bright purple water. We know. We know. It's not, it's not like some delicious-ass Kool-Aid coming out of the sink, in which case I would drink the shit out of it. We know it's water, and we know that there's a problem with it. But, like, be honest about it. But if they can't even be honest about it, then what does that tell you about really who's fighting for you, who's working for you behind the scenes? The emperor has no clothes. <laughs> it's like nobody's there looking out for you. If we have a government that's willing to go as far as saying, 
yeah, that bright purple water is good. Just don't don't drink it or anything because it's really bad. But it's good, though. It's good. We live in a post-truth era, and that's never been more obvious than right now. All right, now we're going to go after the pharmaceutical companies, and nobody earned it more than them. Beach ho, beach ho. So before we jump into this next one, I need to stress that this is not the onion. This is not one of those, uh, you know, satire parody websites or whatever. This is 100% authentic, 100% authentic. Um, So Gizmodo tweeted this. Correction, Gizmodo originally stated that drug company Malink Rot had jacked up the price of anti-seizure medication from $40 in 2000 to over $40,000 today. A spokesperson for Malink Rot emailed to request a correction that the drug cost $38,892. Can you imagine being the dipshit making that phone call? Um, yes. Is this Gizmodo? I have a problem with your coverage. I'm a representative of Malinkrod. Which, by the way, on that name alone, I could have told you they were criminals. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like fucking Malinkrod. Malinkrod. What the fuck, man? They sound like a greedy pharmaceutical company. Um, it does not cost $40,000, and I demand a correction. Okay, what is it worth? 38892 Thank you very much. So I like how uh, Gizmodo, in their article, at the bottom they put this. Correction, this article originally stated that the price of Axar, that's the name of the drug, had gone from just $40 in 2000 over 40000 today. The spokesperson for the company emailed to request a correction that Axar actually cost 38892 today. Gizmodo regrets the error. We also regret that every last one of these guys isn't in prison yet. <laughs> Props to Gizmodo and whoever the fuck wrote that, because holy shit, is that hilarious and totally true. So just to give uh, you guys some more information on this, this drug has been on the market since 1952. 1952 been around for quite a long time now hasn't it um and apparently the company currently rakes in one billion dollars a year from this one drug so this was so over the top and so predatory and such a price gouge that the department of justice stepped in and they never do let's be clear like they fuck pharma companies can rob everybody blind and the Justice Department's like, bro, oh, it's our system. It's capitalism. What are you going to do? Which says a lot that that's oftentimes the response. Um, and they were fined millions. But guess what? Of course, duh, 
what they do is, and this is, happens with Wall Street, happens with Big Pharma and other companies, too, that have political connections. They, they give a slap on the wrist that's less than what was made from the shitty product. So they only find them like $15 million or something like that. I just told you they made a billion dollars on this product. So $15 million, they're going to be like, we'll keep ripping people off. And then if you keep finding us $15 million, okay, we'll pay that and we still have massive profit. Of course. And this is what always happens. This is what happens when, you know, they do the slap on the wrist for Goldman Sachs or for other criminal organizations. They say, oh, you better stop. And to make you stop, we're going to charge you 2% of what you made? 3% thereabouts? Maybe? Isn't that good? <laughs> oh, it's so disgusting. Our system is so fucking broken. Listen, man, before, because I've seen it. I've seen the fucking libertarian screaming till they're blue in the face on stuff like this. Like, you don't understand the way the market works, bro. Yeah, there's the market. It's the market. You, gotta, you need, do you even get the market, bro? Do you even get basic economics, bro? Is it, you don't even get it? Reminds me of a, my favorite, one of my favorite tweets ever, which, uh, you know, like a parody of a libertarian. It says, you see on this graph where this line meets this line? That's why the poor should starve. <laughs> that's, that's a, like, that's, kind of what it sounds like when they make all these ridiculous arguments. Like the other, I saw somebody uh, attack my position on interest rates. It was hilarious. They were like, you don't even get how interest rates work, bro. Well, there's, there was a bill proposed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, among other, and it caps the interest rates. Um, I, what is it capped? I think 15%, right? Or 12% or something like that? And it would destroy the predatory payday loan people. And the person tried to make the argument that, like, it, listen, it's a calculated risk, and they have, like, this detailed, complex formula and stuff that they use, so, like, you don't even know what you're talking about, bro. Yeah, but loan sharking is a thing, and there is a line where you could step in and do basic regulation and says, okay, if you charge more than this, you're ripping them the fuck off. There were people charge 390-some-odd percent, and you're going to defend that? Because free market, bro, free market. I mean, it's just, it's, it's beyond ridiculous. So, um, that's like this issue. Can anybody really argue? Well, I mean, that number, 38,892, was brought down by Tinkerbell, and it's written in the laws of nature, and it has to be, no, of course not. Come on, man. Stop it. Every other developed nation charges way less for their pharmaceutical drugs than we do. One of the reasons is they actually have the government negotiate for a better price. And also, in the case of the U.K., the government just pays for it. They just pay for your medicine. Because that's what they've decided. Hey, we're going to prioritize where our tax dollars go. This is one of the first things we'd put our tax money towards. Medicine for sick people. Of course. Why not? What a great thing to actually spend your tax money on. But no, here we rob people blind and we let the pharmaceutical companies get away with it with nothing but a slap on the wrist. So if you're not in favor of Medicare for all and you're not in favor of uh, cracking down on these pharmaceutical companies, then don't come asking for our votes because there is no middle ground approach to fix something like this. You don't need a middle ground approach. You need a, a swashbuckling, crusading populist who's going to fight for the people, full stop.
Okay, let's talk about Seth Moulton. So Democratic presidential candidate Seth Moulton told a story of how he got PTSD from being in war. Um, but as you're about to see right here, the story is not what you think it is. So I thought when I first saw this, I was like, oh, this is, you know, hey, he's actually having a human moment. And uh, that's good because he seems like he's so overly coached and so careful and he's such a narcissist and a careerist that, you know, it's so see-through and obvious and transparent. So I was a little surprised when I saw this headline and I was like, okay, let me watch this and see what's up. This story is beyond disturbing. So at an event near his hometown, Holm tried something new. He told a story he'd never shared before. To be honest, I have not had the courage before to talk about my own struggles with post-traumatic stress. And I'd like to tell a story about the ways that I've dealt with uh, post-traumatic stress by just sharing a story that I've, that I've never shared before. It happened on the, the second day of the, of the war. The Marines just ahead of us shot up some cars and buses coming in the other direction because they thought they were full of insurgents. But not all of them were. And one of the cars was a family that was fleeing south. And as we came upon this car that had been essentially destroyed, I could see that the mother and father were clearly dead. But there's a, a little boy who had been thrown from the car to the middle of the road. And the boy was still alive. He was lying in the middle of the road, writhing in, writhing in pain. And I, as the platoon commander, made the right decision, which was to drive around him and press the attack. Because stopping to take care of him would have endangered the lives of my entire platoon. But it was one of the most painful decisions I've ever made in my life. Because there is nothing that I wanted more to do than to stop that vehicle and get out and to help this five-year-old boy. Also, veteran, what does it mean to you to see someone who's running for president who openly said that? Him going out of his way to speak his truth and tell his story in the way that he did was, to me, not just eye-opening, but inspiring because it's direly necessary, and I admire him for really putting himself out there. And you know what? It worked. At least for one spin of the news cycle, Milton broke through. The question is whether continuing to tell his story can make him relevant. Congressman, you talked tonight about some things at this town hall that you've never talked about before in public. How do you feel? I'm glad it is, um, because I think the reaction from the audience here made it clear that they appreciated it. But um, but it's tough, and it's a political risk, you know, so we'll see tomorrow um, what the consequences are. What do you mean when you... So I want you to think about the framing that he just laid out there for you. He says, let me tell you the story about how I got PTSD in war. And then he describes how 
basically U.S. soldiers killed some civilians. They thought they were insurgents. They ended up killing civilians, including a mother and father. And a five-year-old boy was laying on the ground in pain. I don't know if he was shot or something else, but laying on the ground in excruciating pain, and he made the decision not to help the five-year-old civilian boy, but to drive around the five-year-old civilian boy so that they can go fight terrorists. The framing of his story was not, oh my God, that's when I realized war is a racket. What are we doing here? This is insanity. We're in a country that didn't attack us. We just killed civilians. We're ignoring a five-year-old boy. And I don't know. If, is this all worth it? Is this all necessary? Is this, is this what happens to fight back after 9-11, that we have to kill civilians and invade a country that didn't attack us? And none of that was mentioned. The whole story is framed from, and as a result of this, I have emotional scars and I have PTSD. Now, I'm not, I just want to be clear, I'm not belittling or looking down on or brushing aside U.S. soldiers who have PTSD, because that's a silent killer. A lot of U.S. soldiers are killing themselves. Um, after having gone and fought in these wars. And so it's a serious problem, and I have sympathy. But the fact that he put front and center in that story his feelings over the deaths of civilians and a five-year-old boy who was left to die shows you something about his priorities and the kind of person he is. See, that's where somebody who's more open-minded, somebody who's more objective, somebody who's not a narcissist, that's where somebody like in that situation would have gone, oh my God, oh my God, what have I done? What have we done? We got to stop this war and we have to stop it now. And by the way, there are people like, you know, soldiers who have had that reaction. Um, Abby Martin's husband, Mike uh, Prisoner, Prisoner? I don't know how to pronounce your name, Mike. I'm sorry. But he, um, he went to war, and then he said he realized when he was there that in some instances, are we the baddies? Because it certainly doesn't feel like we're fighting on the side of justice right now. And he had like a, you know, an awakening in a way. Seth Moulton um, apparently saw firsthand the killing of civilians, and including a five-year-old boy on the ground about to die, um, rolling all around in pain. Not only did he make the call to ignore it, but then he framed it afterwards as, man, this really gave me some emotional scars. What it should have done is it should have lit a fire under your, under your ass to say, we got to get the fuck out of these wars, man. Because those people just died for what? For nothing. For nothing. For absolutely nothing they died. Their country didn't attack us. I, you know, the thing that frustrates me and bothers me the most is I think it was a political calculation on his part. He wasn't just, he wasn't just like, oh, here, I'll tell this story. No, he thought about it quite a bit, and he thinks, hey, this might give me a spike in the polls, so I'll tell it. 
that is dark, man. That is dark. Because if that's really how it went down, stop and think about it. He's going to tell the story of civilians dying in Iraq. And a five-year-old boy on the ground that he ignored. He's going to tell that story, not to make the point of the wars have to end, but to make the point of, and now I'm scarred by that. Well, I'm scarred by that story, and I'm scarred by you not coming to the conclusion, holy shit, let's end all these stupid wars. All right, final break. When we come back, I got um, CNN host Michael Smearconish concern trolled the Democrats on going too far left. We have a trans pastor in the South. And um, the Trump administration is cracking down on Cuba yet again, and that is uh, pretty stupid and incredibly sad. So stay right there. We'll talk about all that and much more.
right, you punk bitches. Remember, remember Michael Smear Conish, the CNN host? Yeah, I don't either. Nobody does, actually. <laughs> but uh, he wants to give you his irrelevant opinion, his terrible uh, take on um, what's happening with the Democratic Party. So, yeah, let me play this for you, and then we'll talk about it. CNN host Michael Smirkanish concern-trolled about the Democrats moving too far left. Check this out. I'm Michael Smirkanish in Philadelphia. Are Democrats snatching defeat from the jaws of victory by moving too far to the left? That's today's survey question at Smirkanish.com in an effort to appease the most vocal activists within the party. Are its presidential candidates moving too far to the left to win in the general election against President Trump. You know it's an old adage. To get nominated, you move to the edge. To win, you move to the center. But early in this cycle, there are signs that Democrats might be moving too far. Consider that on Thursday night, Joe Biden changed the position that he's held for four decades. Biden said that he would no longer support the Hyde Amendment, which bans the use of federal funds for abortion. Now, his logic makes sense. He said that where he views health care as a right, he could no longer support an amendment that makes that right dependent on someone's zip code. His change came after his prior view was hammered by his opponents who painted his prior position in extreme terms. Cory Booker said that he regarded the Hyde Amendment as an assault on African-American women, and maybe that gave Biden a push. Maybe he thought he could not risk alienating voters of color with the trifecta of Anita Hill, the 94 crime bill, and the Hyde Amendment. While the new Biden position will play well in primary season, the most recent polling we have on this from 2016 shows that most Americans, 58%, they liked his prior view. And abortion is not the only example of where the party risks running too far to the left. Impeachment, it's the buzzword of the day for many Democratic activists, and House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler has been pushing Speaker Nancy Pelosi to facilitate the launch of proceedings. But, as Axios pointed out yesterday, 75% of the Democratic House caucus has yet to publicly support impeachment, and where it takes 21 of 24 House Judiciary Dems to refer impeachment to the floor, only 13 are so far publicly on board. Still, 11 Democratic presidential candidates have called for the impeachment of President Trump, including Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and Beto O'Rourke. But the polling suggests this is not where a majority of Americans stand. A recent CNN poll found that 41% of Americans believe President Trump should be impeached or removed from office, but 54% say he should not. 5% had no opinion. Last weekend, at a gathering of California Democrats, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper was booed after warning attendees that the party should not embrace socialism. We want to beat Donald Trump and achieve big progressive goals. Socialism is not the answer. I was reelected. Here again, socialism might no longer be taboo at the DNC, but among all Americans, a majority remain opposed. A Gallup poll from April showed that while four in ten Americans embrace some form of socialism, and that's a marked increase over the last century, still 51% believe socialism would be a bad thing for the country. And then there's health care. 
You can add Medicare for All to the list of issues that are gaining currency among Democratic candidates, impeachment, repealing the Hyde Amendment, socialism, and the Green New Deal. But are Americans ready to replace all of private insurance? When former Congressman John Delaney tried to distinguish Medicare for All from universal coverage when speaking to California Democrats, he too was booed. Medicare for All may sound good, but it's actually not good policy, nor is it good politics. I'm telling you. Hearing that, rising Democratic star Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez told Delaney via Twitter that it was time for him to, quote, sashay away. Okay, let's break this down. Um, So his analysis here is just very poor. Because what he did is he cherry-picked the handful of issues where he can try to make his case, and he ignored over 90% of the issues. So let's go through this. When you talk about, okay, abortion and the Hyde Amendment, does he have a point on that specific issue? Actually, yes, he does. He does. He just literally just showed you the poll. He has an issue on that specific point. On the issue of impeachment, does he have a point? Yes, he does. On that specific point... He has a point. Um, Now, what he doesn't tell you is this. He mentions Medicare for All at the end there. Medicare for All, notice he didn't show you a poll for that. Why? Because Medicare for All polls at 70%. Maybe there's a reason why he's not showing you a poll about that one. Um, Other issues where Americans are with the so-called far left. Increasing the minimum wage. 80% of the American people want to increase the minimum wage. Free college, 58% of the American people want free college. Uh, Marijuana legalization, 60% of the American people want that. Um, Ending the wars, only 17% of Americans still support the war in Afghanistan. Raising taxes on the rich, 58% of the American people want to raise taxes on the rich. And the list goes on and on. So, in other words, what he did is he cherry-picked, like, the handful of issues where what's perceived as the furthest left position is not with the majority of Americans. And he's using that to concern troll and make a much broader, bolder claim. And the bolder claim is, are Democrats moving too far left? The answer is no. Very clearly, no. If anything, they have to move further left. Um, But having said that, on those specific issues he brought up at the beginning – Abortion, uh, in in terms of the Hyde Amendment, and impeachment, he does have an argument on those very narrow issues. Now, to the socialism point, listen, the reality is when you go issue for issue, the American people do not know how left they are. And this is a, a point I've made many times before. If you poll the American people and you just ask them broadly about the labels, hey, where do you fall on the political spectrum? Their response is moderately conservative. So center-right, that's how your average American describes their politics, okay? But when you go, okay, put aside the labels, because we're assuming you know what the labels are when we ask you about the labels, and that's a mistake, just go by the issues. They're not even center-left, they're just left. The American people are just left. And again, you go through, you you name the issue, I'll tell you the number. Um like 65% of Americans think immigration is a good thing for the country. And that's, remember, Trump got elected, and so it became 
um, establishment bubble conventional wisdom of like, well, obviously you got to be anti-immigration to win. No, actually, the American people overwhelmingly think immigration is a net positive thing. So that's not true. But that's just one, that's one example. I can go on and on and on here as to, like, even on the issue of abortion, um, the most popular position is to have abortion legal in a variety of circumstances. So, in other words, people see the utility of, like, okay, would I ban late-term abortions if it's not in a rare instance of, like, life of the mother or incest or rape? Yes. So people have that position, but they also think, well, yeah, but most of the time it should just be the woman's choice. That's what the polls show. So, in other words, having abortion legal in all cases doesn't poll that high. But what polls the worst? Banning all abortions. That polls the worst. The position that the American people have is the position of Roe versus Wade, which is, yeah, abortion is legal, but after viability, then the states can regulate it as they see fit. That's what Roe versus Wade is. That's what the American people believe. So even he's being a little misleading even on the issue of abortion because he's just talking about the Hyde Amendment here. And the Hyde Amendment is, should federal funds go towards abortion? And apparently the American people, 58% of them say no on that front. But again, what he's doing is he's cherry-picking data to make a broader claim and a broader argument that actually doesn't fit the data. Because if I give you a list of 15 policy positions, and there are three policy positions in there where the American people are not with the left, that doesn't mean that they're going too far left. You could say on those narrow issues, perhaps they're going too far left, but on the majority of the issues, they're not going too far left. In fact, if anything, they should go further left. And by the way, I've also said to the, to the uh, socialism point, this is actually why I said from early on that uh, Bernie Sanders made a mistake when he described himself as a democratic socialist, um, because there is still a taboo around that word. Now, not among young Americans anymore. Young Americans, they, they're like, I, I like that even better than I like capitalism. But for older generations, there's still a taboo. Now, you could argue, well, that taboo needs to be changed, and we need to fight back against that, so on and so forth. But the reality is there was a way to have your cake and eat it, too, where you still accurately describe what you are while not having the negative taboo associated with it, which is social democracy, where you get the best of both worlds, where you get the Scandinavian-style system. And so I, I would have advised Bernie early on, describe yourself as a social democrat. But listen, to be clear, I don't think Bernie knew the difference between democratic socialism and social democracy, so he didn't. He just said, I'm the, I'm the democratic socialist, and then opened up that door, and now everybody says that. And I do think that kind of handed a little victory to the right in that sense, because they could beat up on you all day and strawman you because you walked into the field of saying, I believe in a post-capitalist philosophy. Um, when he doesn't, he really is a social democrat who inaccurately describes himself as a democratic socialist. But I digress from that point. Bottom line is, uh, Smirkanish is concern trolling here and making a very bad point. And the point is, oh, my God, Democrats have moved too far to the left, when in reality, on the overwhelming majority of the issues, they need to move further left, further left. There are a handful of issues where you could say, whoa, 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 pump your brakes. Even if you believe in that, you don't run on it. Like, like for example, with Bernie, when he said uh, failing should vote. You could say, you know what, Bernie, you're right on principle. I agree with you on that. The right to vote is a right, full stop. Fine, fine and dandy. But if you run a campaign on that, you're a dumbass. <laughs> because the polls show overwhelmingly that the American people don't agree with Bernie. So there are a few little areas where Smirkanish actually has an argument, but he's making too strong a claim, too bold a claim, too big a claim 
that doesn't fit the overall argument, doesn't fit the reality of the situation, and uh, it's incredibly, incredibly misleading. But just so we're clear, this is going to be used now by the establishment Democrats, the centrist Democrats. They're going to think, oh, Spear Kanish is right, and their thought is going to be, well, so we need to run to the center on all the issues. And good luck on that one. You're going to get slapped in the face by reality, not just in the primary, but also in the general. Because it turns out the key to winning a general election is to excite your base. That's what Trump showed, if nothing else. Excite your base. Always hold your base. You cannot slap them in the face. And also, it's the populism, stupid. So the Democrats have a built-in advantage because they can hammer away on the issues that their base loves, Medicare for all, free college, living wage, ending the war, so on and so forth. And that also gets independents and even some Republicans. So it's a built-in advantage because it's the populism. If you're real populist, you can win. So Smirkanish, as usual, has no idea what he's talking about. Um, but I doubt he will ever issue a correction, even though what he said is not true. So a trans pastor started a church in the South. This is a really interesting piece by now this. Watch. I knew that, that God loved me long before I knew that I was trans. It is totally possible to be a person of faith and to be LGBTQ. I thank you for your life. the year that I realized I was trans. Around the same time, I also felt a strong sense that I was called to pastor a church and specifically to start a church. We have a lot of churches, but in a town of 70,000 people, there are only two affirming churches. I've been in several churches where I've opened up to my pastor about um, that, that I'm gay and um, it was a, a terrible experience. Selfishly, it's in, important to me because I, I need a church where I can minister and where I can worship. Uh, as a trans person, as a queer person, um, there, there aren't a lot of places that are safe and inclusive for me. I guess our motto is come as you are. It's not just, yes, you're welcome here, we will love the sinner, hate the sin. You are welcome in this chapel, no matter what. All right, so I, I have a lot to say about this. First of all, that that ending there was beautiful. The idea of, yeah, you know, listen, we're totally inclusive, and you can come as you are. Just be who you are when you come here, and we'll accept you. Um, that's great, and, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of churches in the South do not abide by that. And, in fact, they even said it in that little piece there. Like, there are two what they called affirming churches. I think that what that means is churches that are cool with LGBTQ people. Um, so I think that's, that, that's lovely. And um, I'm not a religious person, but to the extent that religion is still around, you would want people to be more tolerant and open-minded and open-hearted and accepting people as who they are as opposed to being judgmental nonstop. But that gets to the second point, which is even though I think this is beautiful, um, religion is still dumb. 
religion is still dumb because it's irrational. And you get the sense. So there's a longer piece. I watched the whole piece. And basically my takeaway from it is these are people who want that sense of community, want that sense of belonging. A lot of these people were raised in the church. So it's pretty much all they know in that it's a normal part of their life. You go to the church on Sunday. You create friendships and relationships with the people who go to church with you, your community. But, you know, I can't help but say, can't people develop that sense of community outside of the church? Because I think the answer to that is most definitely yes. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I think the reason why they're, they're inclined in this direction is because they were raised in the church, so they feel like I, that's where you go for that community. That's where you go for that kinship, so that's where I want to go. Fair enough, and by all means, you can go ahead and do it. But um, that doesn't make Sky Wizards real, is the point. Because um, I really do believe that people can get that sense of community and can get that sense of belonging in a variety of different ways. You know, if you're somebody who likes to play chess and you go to the park every Tuesday and Thursday, and at the park on Tuesday and Thursday, the same group of guys play chess every, every week, well, then you find a sense of community and belonging by doing that. Um, you know, if you're somebody who likes to play video games and you're part of a gaming community, you can get a sense of community that way. If you're somebody, I like to play golf and I like to play um, poker, you get a sense of community through those things by always engaging in them and having mutual interest with people. And so there's a way to have that community, have that kinship without necessarily buying into a whole list of um, metaphysical claims and, you know, silly make-believe ideas like somebody died and then rose up again and, <laughs> and all that stuff. Um, but again, having said all that, and you guys know I'm not a religious person, which is why I would even bother to make these arguments. Bottom line is, as long as religion is going to be around, and I think it's going to be around, these are the kinds of religious people you want. You don't want those hardcore, fundamentalist, right-wing, judgmental, nonstop kind of people. You want people who are willing to accept everybody. And they even went on in this piece to say that a lot of atheists go to this church. Okay, so I guess people are getting that community through the church, even if they don't necessarily believe in the tenets of it, which is, again, kind of like the hallmark of a liberal, tolerant church, if you will. So, you know, for the social good alone, I think it's a positive thing. I think that what they're doing here is a positive thing. Even though, as a general rule, I just don't think religion makes sense. But um, they're certainly not hurting anybody, and they're certainly making the world a better place by being nice to each other. So, rock on. So we have a crisis within a crisis happening at the border. Uh, as I'm sure all of you know at this point, there have been a number of children who have died within the past year because of poor attention and poor care at the border. Um, and now we learn this. Yahoo News spoke to five doctors, including Russell and Griffin, who volunteer at shelters and clinics on the border, and each confirmed that they regularly see migrants with chronic conditions like diabetes, asthma, seizures, and high blood pressure 
for which they claimed to have had medication that was confiscated while they were in custody of U.S. Customs and Border Protection and neither returned nor replaced. It happens more frequently to adults who are more likely to be on such medications in the first place, but doctors said they've been hearing similar reports from increasing numbers of children or their parents. For these doctors, all of whom are pediatricians, the seizing of medications heightens concerns about the medical care provided uh, to the record number of children held at processing centers and short-term holding facilities along the southwest border. So they're confiscating medicine, which is probably leading to some of the stories that we've seen of people dying as a result of various medical problems and then trying to cover it up, too. Um, their argument is, it depends on who you talk to. Some people at the Border Patrol just lie and say, we're not doing that. Um, and others say, yeah, we're doing that, but what the fuck, like, what else would you have us do? What are you going to have? Somebody cross the border with a bag of pills, and then you say, go right ahead? They think it's like smuggling drugs into the country. Um, so they want to stop it, and that's why they confiscate it. But... What I don't get is why don't they have doctors or pharmacists who know these drugs and just look at what kind of drug it is? So if somebody's bringing in, um, you know, blood pressure medication, seizure medication, diabetes me medication, nobody's partying with diabetes meds or seizure meds or high blood pressure meds, you know? You know when you stumble across something that might be – smuggling in drugs like somebody's smuggling in fucking anti-anxiety pills but even then maybe they have an anxiety disorder but okay putting that aside you know what might raise a red flag and 90 percent of medications are not going to raise a red flag maybe you have the 10 percent that do whether it be anti-anxiety medication or pain medication opiates opioids so on and so forth like that might raise a little bit of a red flag, in which case you could do a little more digging and researching to see what the deal is, to see if it makes sense to confiscate the pills. But in this case, with a lot of the types of medication that are being brought in, nobody's partying with that shit. Nobody's smuggling that in. They're taking it because it's their medication and they need it. So this is unfortunately what's happening now. And time and time again, we see these stories that really illuminate how cruel the treatment is at the border. Um, and it's not a lot to ask for to have a basic process in place and to show basic humanity to people. And, you know, I don't think that's an unreasonable demand, and I think the majority of the American people would agree with those things. But unfortunately, more and more now, we're seeing the opposite occurring. So they should definitely change the policy around this, but I doubt they will. Listen, all, again, all it would take is at each facility you have to have one doctor or one um, – pharmacist that can tell you what kind of pill it is, and then you can take appropriate action, as opposed to what they're doing now, which is some of the border people are lying about it, and others are saying, yeah, we're confiscating it, but what the fuck else would you have us do? That's a system that's going to lead to more deaths and more disaster. And in the article, they explain how other doctors explain how when I met with many of the people, I ran tests on them, and many of them did have like high blood pressure again. Why? Because of the because of the fact that they took their fucking high blood pressure medication, of course. So they shouldn't do that. So they really need to change the policies, but I doubt they will because it's very similar to what happens with prisoners, which is people have this thing in their mind where they go, 
Well, I mean, they're prisoners, so that's going to be the first thing I'm worried about is what, how prisoners are being treated. It seems like something is put on the back burner because there's so many other problems affecting non-prisoners that you're not going to go to, well, what about the prisoners? In this case, I feel like it's a similar thing where it's like, well, they broke the law coming in here, so like maybe they deserve what they have coming to them. Do you really deserve to die of a fucking seizure or a heart attack because of your, you didn't get your blood pressure medication, they confiscated it? and It just seems so fucked up, and it's just such an easy, quick fix, but I doubt they'll do it. In fact, I, I almost know they won't do it, and it's a shame. And uh, these are going to continue to be people who get the least amount of sympathy in society, and um, certainly on an issue like this, they deserve quite a bit of sympathy. Okay. Final story of the day. Reminder, we're on a little bit of a break after this. There's no show on Thursday and there's no show on Monday. Um, However, there will be a secular talking smack somewhere in there. I'm not sure yet. Follow me on Twitter to get more details on that. So the Trump administration decided to crack down on Cuba yet again, for no good reason. So they're blocking the most common way that Americans are able to visit Cuba, which is through organized tour groups. And um, they're also banning U.S. cruise ships from stopping in the country. I mean, we had a policy for so long that was standoffish against Cuba. One of the better things Obama did was to move away from that And now they're ramping it right back up. So Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said um, in a statement that the restrictions are a result of Cuba, quote, continuing to play a destabilizing role in the Western Hemisphere, providing a communist foothold in the region and propping up U.S. adversaries in places like Venezuela and Nicaragua by fomenting instability, undermining the rule of law and suppressing democratic processes. What's so maddening about that, statement is that's exactly what the U.S. is doing. Let me read that again. So this is what they said about Cuba. Now let's replace Cuba and put in the United States. Um, The United States continues to play a destabilizing role in the Western Hemisphere, providing a foothold in the region and propping up um, Cuban adversaries in places like Venezuela and Nicaragua by fomenting instability, undermining the rule of law, and suppressing democratic processes. That's exactly what we're doing. We're getting involved illegally in Nicaragua and Venezuela. We're fomenting instability. We're undermining the rule of law, and we're suppressing the democratic process. We're trying to overthrow the Venezuelan government and apparently the Nicaraguan government, too, through covert methods as of right now. And we're accusing Cuba of doing that. You know what Cuba's doing? They're allies with those governments. There's nothing illegal about that. (laughs) They're allies with those governments. Now, we might not like those governments, but they're allies with those governments. So what? But we're spinning that as if it's like super nefarious. No, what's nefarious is us trying to overthrow those governments, you fucking dipshit. So um, I really enjoyed Tulsi Gabbard's response to this. She tweeted the following. Basically, Americans will no longer be free to travel to Cuba because Cuba is a communist country and therefore its people are not free. So now the Trump administration, in the name of freedom, is taking away Americans' freedom. 
Make sense? <laughs> that's so true. Like, that's spot on. Like, ah, these countries are against freedom. They're so tyrannical. So to combat them, I'm going to take away your freedom to go there and be tyrannical. Ugh. I, I mean, seriously, travel restrictions? Like, so fucking goofy and stupid and draconian and dumb. Like, fuck you. Let us go wherever we want. So, in other, you know what you can do? You can travel to Canada and then travel to Cuba. But it's like, you shouldn't have to fucking do that shit. You should be able to go wherever the fuck you want. Ah, God damn it. So stupid, man. So, um, what's Trump doing here? He's being a bitch to the deep state. He's being a bitch to the neocons in his administration who want to do more regime change on top of more governments. And they come to him probably a morning when he's tweeting away and eating toaster strudel. And they're like, Mr. President, can we, uh, can we move on this here and change the travel rules to Cuba in order to, uh, you know, whatever. You fill in the blank with whatever goofy shit they probably told him in order to stand up to bad actors in the region or whatever. He's like, yeah, tremendous, unbelievable. Leave me alone. I'm watching Fox and Friends. And uh, that's probably how it went down. And it's a shame because this is dumb policy. We're rolling back the clock. And it's like all these people know is how to be wrong about shit, how to do the wrong policies over and over and over and over. And um, to the point where they've become self-parody. And it is infuriating. baby we're done we're done love y'all and um i will talk to you actually i think tomorrow i have i'm on the michael brooks show tomorrow so you can check that out but yeah we will be back here not this thursday but next thursday and um yeah keep your eyes on my twitter for the secular talking smack when that goes down Love y'all, and we'll talk soon. Peace.